Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome fellow time travellers, great to have you with me as we whiz through time and space. Uh, thanks to everyone who's signed up to my Patreon site. If you don't know about it uh, and how it works, here's the lowdown. Patreon is a subscription model, so by joining up and becoming a member, you help support my podcast. Uh, in return, you get access to lots of extra rewards and exclusive content. There's a weekly vodcast, which I film here at my home in Stirling. Uh, with the help and backup and editing skills of Paul in London. Uh, We run the occasional competition and we give members chances to suggest topics for special podcast episodes. So, there's plenty going on and it's a thriving little community and getting bigger every day. To join, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. Okay, strap yourselves into the time machine, people. It's time for the next stop, the next moment on our podcast journey around the world. Recorder, microphone, action. We consider ourselves to be modern people, and so we are. But a lot of the the things that make us modern are things that were understood and coveted and being achieved by our ancestors 4,000 years ago. Venerated by the gods and instrumental in driving civilization forward, two crops, olives and grapes, were instrumental in changing the Mediterranean world. Olive trees and their oil came to symbolize health, wealth, beauty and wisdom. Ancient Greeks made it punishable by death to harm the trees. Athletes were smothered in oil and the winners of the athletic games were crowned with its leaves. And as trade was established, olive oil became liquid gold and it poured prosperity into the Greek islands. Building a legendary palace on Crete with a legendary labyrinth below. Home to the monstrous Minotaur. Endeavouring to understand history to try and better illuminate the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we followed the money, travelling the globe from the Yap archipelago to North America and Cappadocia in modern day Turkey. Where in the world's history are we this week? Hello again Paul, yes. Uh, last week we were watching as the very concept of money was being moulded and set in place as one of the essential building blocks of civilization. For this week's defining historical moment we're travelling to ancient Crete as the growth of two valuable commodities and true trade helped change the Mediterranean and with it, the whole world. 
if there's a focal point for what we're talking about today, it's Knossos, or Crete. But what we're really thinking about here, before we get to the moment, I think it's always valid to keep an eye on where we've been as, as well as where we're going. And so far, we've identified that in that old world, uh, centred around Mesopotamia, between the, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, were the first civilizations as we would understand them. They were places ruled by kings, and the kings saw themselves to some extent as answerable to gods, invisible above them and around them. Uh, in the case of Egypt, the kings, the pharaohs, were gods, so that there had been a blending of those two fundamental sources of power. Under the likes of Hammurabi, there were codifications of law. Once again, it wasn't thought that people were inventing laws. Rather, there was an assumption or an understanding or a claim that the law came from above, came from God or gods, or indeed that the law simply had always been. The law was immutable, permanent, and it was simply up to kings to make it available to the people so that the people could see it and understand it and live according to that law. That civilization was built upon agriculture, farming. Organised collective farming enabled the production of surplus so that there was more food than was actually required by the people growing it. The food was collected by the kings. It was brought to centralised places and then redistributed. It meant that because there was surplus, it was no longer a necessity that everybody be a farmer. They got farming cracked and they could grow enough surplus food that they could use the surplus to feed and employ specialists. So you had specialists who were able to dedicate their time to other things. Warriors, soldiers to defend the realm, craftsmen and women to make the clothes, to make the fine things, to make the jewellery, architects to, to look after the design of grand buildings, bureaucrats to coordinate the activities of, of worker forces, worker bees, to get things done, to embark upon civic projects, civil engineering, building temples, building walls, building cities, laying out street plans, building houses. And all of that was made possible by, by surplus food. And all of that was up and running 2,000 years and more before the birth of Jesus Christ. It's old and it's, it's established as early as that. This has been a story so far about rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates in Mesopotamia that actually define Mesopotamia. Also the Nile in Egypt. There were outline sketches of civilization on those riverbanks at least 5,000 years ago. The farming was underway and the, the germ of civilization, of urbanization, of city living was already there 5,000 years ago. But by 4,000 years ago, there were also rivers of people on the move. Once some groups of people in Mesopotamia and in Egypt developed fledgling civilization, it attracted other people. We are a magpie species, and things catch our eyes. Sparkly things, shiny things. And fledgling civilization is a sparkly thing. People could see the benefit of it. 
anyone that encountered that way of life made possible by all those activities, by gathering around kings, by organising farming so that there was surplus, by living a law-abiding life, by and large, there was a flowering. It made possible a, a, a way of living, a, a lifestyle that was attractive to other people who didn't have it. And so the very existence of those fledgling civilizations in Mesopotamia and in Egypt and elsewhere in the old world attracted people from outside so that before anyone knew where they were, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were on the move coming in search of that way of life. Some people came in and settled in the, in the, in the already established civilizations and just became what they had beheld took on that life, mimicking that life. Others came in and displaced. They came in like cuckoos into the nest and displaced people. And those displaced people in turn moved elsewhere. And they took their culture, their fledgling civilization, to the places that they settled so that it spread like a virus in amongst the fledgling civilizations that they settled among. So you've you've got a great churn of people. It kicks up a dust cloud. And when I say that, I mean that it's difficult to work out exactly who was coming from where and where they were going. They're kind of lost in the dust cloud of of history. Some of the dust is kicked up not just by, by human feet, but by horses' hooves. Horses were unknown in Mesopotamia. They were not an indigenous animal. But they were brought in by outsiders including the Hyksos. The Hyksos is a, a, a population, we'll find out more about them as the, as the story of the world continues. Hyksos is an Egyptian word and it means the kings from foreign lands. Because for a while, Egypt was conquered by outsiders and they were remembered in Egyptian history as the, as the foreign kings, the kings from foreign lands, the Hyksos. So the, the Hyksos arrived in Egypt with chariots Although the Egyptians, in their own good time, developed chariot making to an absolute peak of perfection, the chariot itself, the wheeled vehicle pulled by horses, was not their idea. It was an idea that arrived among them, was brought among them by outsiders. Also, uh, among the wanderers, among the people who were were moving back and forth, these rivers of people, were speakers of what are known as the Semitic languages, in the Old Testament, Noah has three sons, Ham, Japheth, and Shem. And it's from Shem that we get the Semitic languages. The sons of Shem, the, the peoples descended from Shem, are the Semites who speak the Semitic languages. Semitic, the Semitic people are really defined, they're not a, they're, there is only one race, but they are a cultural grouping united by language. You know, so the Semitic peoples speak a family of languages, amongst them Akkadian, Arabic, Aramaic, Hebrew, others besides. You know, so Hebrew and Arabic are are Semitic languages. In this melting pot, in this confusing mix of people, there were the speakers of the Indo-European languages. The languages that we speak here have as their deepest roots the Indo-European languages. So they were on the move, and in in time, it was Indo-Europeans or speakers of Indo-European languages who would found the Persian civilization, which is the deepest root of Iran. So, by by 2000 BC, 4,000 years ago, some of the consequences of all this 
fledgling civilization and all these move all this movement of people, all this agitated fizzing, you know, like, like, you know, all this energy in one place. It was it, it, it was it was sending out it was sending its energy out into the wider area, and some of it came out into the west, travelling towards the Mediterranean and the Aegean. And at all times, at all times, it was farming, it was agriculture that made all of this possible. The more successful people were at producing food and sharing food and circulating their food supplies amongst themselves, then everything else was made possible by that. And for the longest time, it was cereal crops. In Mesopotamia, in Egypt, it was cereal crops, wheat domesticated grass of one sort or another, barley, oats, wheat, those were the mainstays of those earliest civilizations. But other people, the soils that they had at their disposal in their territories weren't necessarily suitable for growing those crops. You need a particular kind of soil for growing wheat and the rest. And so in other areas, it was experiment with and the husbanding of other plants that made civilization possible in other places. And so the moment, this fifth moment that matters, is when someone somewhere noticed the potential of grapes, the grapevine, and the olive tree. Those are indigenous plants in certain parts of the world. You know, they're occurring naturally. Before humans paid any particular attention to them, far less began to put them where they wanted them to be and to develop them and to, and to alter them in their own interests. But at some point, someone noticed the potential of these plants. And the, the earliest evidence of the cultivation of olive trees, for example, is actually found in Israel, specifically on the Carmel coast of Israel. So there's deliberate husbanding of and cultivation of olive trees in Israel. But by around the same time, and probably from that source, probably spreading from Israel, but by about 2000 BC, they were also the mainstay of life on the island of Crete. Crete in the Aegean. Now, cereals were being grown there, but not enough of the soil lent itself to the cultivation of cereal crops. But more of the soil, more of the territory of the islands in the Aegean was suitable for olives and for the grapevine. So these are the modern-day Greek islands? Yes, yes. So the early cultivation of olives and grapes flourished in the Aegean, but as nowhere else seems to have been the mainstay of something very, very special on Crete, based upon the wealth that could be generated from the cultivation of olives and the grapevine. Now, we know that by at least 2,500 years before the birth of Christ, there were farmers on Crete. The techniques of agriculture were already established there at that point, and the surplus that was coming from that agriculture was provided the foundation for building towns with regular street plans, planned habitations, sophisticated planned habitations. Conceived in the mind of someone who plans a regular street plan, sees to that being laid out, and then houses and the rest of the buildings being built around that plan. The first of these these centres of civilization on Crete were on the coast, 
And no doubt because as well as uh, taking advantage of the interior of Crete, they wanted access to the sea for trade. Being able to inhabit that, that zone between the sea and the land is always good. It increases your options. And so by placing the, the first of their, their cities on the coast, it gave those peoples of Crete access to the Near East, to the Egyptians, to the, to the Mesopotamians, and as well as people moving back and forth and the trade that that facilitated, bringing in things that had hitherto been unavailable in Crete and vice versa, it also enables the transfer of ideas. Perhaps the most important commodity, the most important cargo that is on the move once you have trade established, it's the sharing of ideas that make everything else possible. And if you remember the tomb of Rekmir, the Egyptian vizier that we talked about, and we talked about how the paintings in his tomb showed the commodities and the goods that he had overseen, the things that were being brought into Egypt, that were being brought to Pharaoh. You know, he was the overseer of all that, and a lot of the artworks depict the great wealth that the vizier Rekmir oversaw that was the wealth of Pharaoh. And in amongst it all, there are depictions of gigantic pottery jugs. Now, in that Greek ancient world context, you know, a familiar world is amphora, amphorae, for those big, quite feminine-shaped containers that were used for all sorts. Uh, but in the context of Crete, uh, in, you know, around that, at the start of the second millennium BC, the, the word in question is pithoi, P-I-T-H-O-I. It's a Greek word, and it describes ceramic vessels as tall as a man, huge. And they were used for storing really vast quantities of olive oil, wine, and, and also grain. The Egyptians, as depicted in the tomb of Rekmir, were in receipt of a lot of goods, a lot of trade from Crete. It's difficult to tell the Egyptians, a bit like the Chinese emperors later on, while other people thought that they were trading with Egypt, the Egyptian pharaohs preferred to think that they were being offered tribute. <laughs> they, they preferred to think that people were just bringing them special lovely things because they were pharaoh. Uh, but in any event, in any event, the goods were coming in and they were being recorded by the bureaucrats who worked for people like Rekmir. And as well as the, the, the pithoi that are bringing the wealth, the depictions on that tomb, amongst other places, they show the people of Crete. They show what the Cretans looked like. And the, the Cretans that were bringing those vessels of, of olive oil and wine and grain and the rest, their skin is coloured dark red. That's the, the colouring as, as depicted by the, by the Egyptians. They've got long, dark hair. You know, they wear their hair long. They have curls on their heads, on the top of their heads. They wear loincloths around their waists. And then their legs are covered in some kind of um, close-fitting, tailored fabric. They wear sandals that are fastened with, with, uh, with leather straps. So we get, a, we get an impression of what the, the Cretans look like, and at, and at the very least, the Egyptians seem to be making it plain that they don't look like them. You know, they're, they're making the point that in, in these depictions of the Cretans and other people that these are foreigners. And, and here's, here's how odd the foreigners look. Now, a lot of what we know about Bronze Age Crete, and this is Bronze Age Crete that we're talking about. A lot of our information comes from excavations that were conducted on Crete by Sir Arthur Evans, 
and he, he excavated various sites on Crete around 1900. His principal work was centred around Knossos, uh, on the north coast. Um, and what he found was a, a fabulous complex of buildings around a huge central court that he interpreted as a palace. There were other cities on Crete that he found and, and understood, uh, Malia on the north coast and Phaistos on the south coast. But in terms of the scale, the comparable scale between those places, it seemed obvious certainly to Arthur Evans, that everyone on Crete was somehow submissive to, subservient to whoever sat on the throne at Knossos. That was the paramount location on the island. So there might have been lesser leaders, powerful people, but they were answerable to whoever sat at Knossos. That was the centre of it all. It was Arthur Evans who gave us the name Minoan. Everyone talks about Minoan Crete in the Bronze Age. And that was because Greek tradition had it that King Minos, M-I-N-O-S, had lived and ruled Crete from Knossos. He was married to Pasiphae, who was the daughter of the sun, the daughter of the god of the sun, according to the legend. Minos, who was a, a mortal man, he somehow managed to offend Poseidon, the god of the sea, and Poseidon responded by making Pacify fall in love with a bull. And in that coupling with the bull, well, the consequences of that coupling with the bull was the monstrous Minotaur. Half man, half bull. And so a, a great labyrinth had to be built beneath the palace, according to the legend. And it was down there in the darkness that the Minotaur roamed. And he was kept at bay. He, he was pacified you would say, by being offered young men and women who were sent into the labyrinth to be consumed or to have done to them whatever the Minotaur wanted to do. Uh, and then eventually, according to the Greek legend, the Minotaur was slain by Theseus. So knowing that legend, Arthur Evans placed it, located it, made his excavation the home of all of that. But... Set aside the notions of gods and goddesses and, and monstrous beasts called Minotaur, there was a palace of some significance at Knossos that lasted for at least 250 years. Sometime around 1500, 1600 years BC, there was a volcanic eruption and an earthquake and accompanying tsunami on the island of Thera nearby. And all of that caused devastation on Crete. You know, whatever civilization was going on Crete was, was laid waste at that point. But then it recovered. In the succeeding years, survivors and maybe other incomers rebuilt the palace and it continued to be a significant centre for at least two more centuries, at least another 200 years. And all of that Minoan civilization. now this is the factual place, the real place, not the place of myth, it was made rich by farming. They grew cereals, so they grew wheat and things like wheat, but primarily it was about the cultivation of olives and grapes. And the wealth, the wealth from olives and grapes made everything else possible. Without the olive and the, and the grape, we wouldn't have the great civilization of the Mediterranean and the Aegean. The possibility of having people like Socrates and the, and the rest of the, of the great philosophers they were the fruits of a civilization that was only possible because of the identification of the potential of the grape and the olive. 
that that great civilization would not have existed, would not have been possible, had it not been for the fact that in some particular moment in time, in Israel as it happens, the potential of the olive and the grape was realized. And once that was realized, and once that potential spread, it made everything else possible. With this new wealth, was there a shift of power to the Mediterranean? Absolutely, absolutely. Although, it, you know, the, it was less promising land. You know, the, the Nile makes the riverbanks that run through that part of Egypt immensely fertile. And elsewhere there was the potential for, you might say, greater fertility. But although the Greek world and the Aegean world was harder, the thrown tough fingers of the olive tree and the grapevine came together with that territory, with that terrain, and made possible something that is to some extent even greater, and that had a more lasting influence. And the olive was particularly important, it has to be said. The fruit itself could be eaten, the oil that could be pressed from the fruit. It was the stuff of life itself. Obviously the oil could be consumed and drunk and cooked with and eaten and it was incredibly nutritious. It could be burned in lamps for light and warmth. The bark and the wood of the tree could be burned. The leaves and the twigs were used for all sorts, for stuffing mattresses and for soft furnishings. The wood was used and turned for tools and for structures, buildings, you know, the interior structures of buildings was made of the olive tree. And so once trade in that commodity was established, all else was possible. Homer described olive oil as liquid gold. So valuable was it. Solon, Solon, who was the lawmaker of ancient Greece, he decreed that the harming or the burning or the, or the otherwise destruction of an olive tree was a crime punishable by death. So valuable was the olive tree. It was recognised as being so much the lifeblood of the people. Some of the trees were actually worshipped as gods in their own right. Hippocrates, you know, the father of medicine, he wrote about scores of ways in which olive oil could be used. Amongst other things, it was a contraceptive. Uh, he wrote that it should be applied to that part of the womb where the seed falls. So women, Greek women in the ancient world, were using olive oil as a contraceptive apart from anything else. Offerings of olive oil were made to the gods to please them. You know, olive oil was sacrificed to the gods. Athletes, the athletes of, of ancient Greece, uh, were anointed with it until, they, until their skins shone. In the event of victory in the games, they were crowned with the olive leaves. And the, the offering of an olive branch was an offering of peace after war. So it's from the olive. This is a moment, this understanding of the potential of the olive tree and of the grapevine. These were fruits that made possible life itself. And from that life, once it had taken root, civilization was almost an inevitable. So that civilization could take root in even the most unpromising of physical circumstances. And once that civilization was established in Greece, in ancient Greece, it gave birth to nothing less than wisdom itself. It was one of the first really important cash crops then. Yeah. And still is. Yeah, it's still a cash crop. You know, the, you know, the, 
so much of our life here, here in the frozen north, uh, you know, it, we still we still hugely value olive oil, olives. There's still a mark of civilization. You know, there's there's still a little bit of kudos associated with you know a bowl of olives, you know, on the table or a jar of olives, and cooking with olive oil or dressing your salad and, and other foodstuffs with olive oil is a mark of middle class living. And wine, fine wine, is still regarded as a mark of civilization. Yeah. You know, the consumption of beer and ale and cider is still regarded consciously or subconsciously as, as something of the working people. Yeah. Where the consumption of fine wine, fine wine, <laughs> is a cut above. Yeah. You know, so it's olives, olive oil, wine, to this day, are associated with good living and people who regard themselves and are to some extent regarded by others as being a cut above. Yeah. And health as well. Yes, it's still, yes. I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the consumption of olives, uh, drinking olive oil, eating olive oil, having it on your, on your vegetables, having it on your salads, you know, is still generally regarded as efficacious f- for health. We, we still imbue the olive with the notion that it, it, that it makes us better. Was it these cash crops that fueled the rise to prominence of the West? Yes, it's all founded upon. It's all. It, it's always important to remember that it's founded upon food supply. I, I can't help but notice it at the moment. I'm, I'm watching. We're all watching around the world um, the the threat of food shortages. And what are we worried about when it comes right down to it? We're worried about shortages of wheat, the stuff of bread, and we're worried about. The, in, in particularly in the case of Ukraine and Russia, sunflower oil, you know, the stuff of cooking. But the, the world, however sophisticated we may think we are, here in the West or anywhere else, once you run across a shortage of wheat and cooking oil, all hell breaks loose. Civilization is still founded upon that. And, you know, you look at the, there are, there are I think, more than 100 countries around the world right now are approaching chaos because poor people can't get access to basic foods or they can't afford basic foods. And it comes down in the end to a shortage of wheat and a shortage of oil. And from the beginning, civilization, the better life, was based upon successfully creating and storing surplus food. We knew that 5,000 years ago. And it's still, it's still the stuff of life. And here in the 21st century, the populations, the poor populations of 100 developing countries are facing food shortage. And what are they short of? Bread, wheat, flour, cooking oil, the very basics. Civilization is, is, as it always has been, founded upon bread and oil. The remains at Knossos give you a glimpse into the wealth that must have been flowing into Crete. They are amazing places, aren't they? Yes, they are. There's, 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 there's real grandeur. Their circumstances were different, their technologies were simpler, but they were conceiving of greatness and in those palace complexes, they were achieving it. 
and, and what they achieved in that time would impress us. I mean, we're impressed by the ruins. <laughs> and we would certainly be impressed by those structures as they were in their pomp. By 2000 years BC, there are cities that we would recognise all over the world. We'll get to the fact that, you know, 2000 BC, there were, you know, there were cities in India complicated, laid out on regular street plans, with plumbing, with running water in the houses, enough to fill baths, enough to carry away waste. All of that had been thought of and was being laid out 4,000 years ago. We consider ourselves to be modern people, and so we are, but a lot of the, the things that make us modern are things that were understood and coveted and being achieved by our ancestors 4,000 years ago. Stepping outside the map with Europe at its heart, a vast landmass isolated by the world's highest mountains and dense jungles, a flourishing civilization set apart from others, a unifying culture of immense power and duration, and the emergence of a new god. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Allthorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. 